0: Well, for the last few days and last few times here at the chapel, we've been asking a lot of questions, and I hope that you are also grappling with some of these questions. We've been talking about what it means for us as a church to encounter these drastic, dramatic changes in the world around us. As the world becomes more diverse, as Christianity becomes more global, and we are dealing with a transition from a Western, American, North American, European-centric Christianity to a much more global African, Asian, and uh, Latin American Christianity, and that these changes are also occurring in the context of the North American Church, particularly in the United States. So uh, I have hopefully raised some questions for you, things to think about, reflect upon. How do we as the church in the 21st century Respond to these changes that historically in the 20th century. We actually responded to them in very dysfunctional ways Either as those who hated the culture so much that we became irrelevant to the world Or we love the culture so much that we also became irrelevant to the world But I want to talk tonight about what I think is one of the ways that we can address these very drastic and incredible challenges That the church is facing in the 21st century And it sounds very simplistic in fact, but the simple answer is leadership that is prepared to take on many of these changes. And I think that's one of the reasons why I get excited about teaching at an institute of higher education, because what you're learning in these kinds of contexts are what's going to be shaping who you are in the next 20, 30 years of your life, and the type of leader you're going to be for the church, in the church and on behalf of the church, are going to be the type of leaders that you're being shaped for during these very pivotal years of formation, spiritual formation, uh, leadership formation, all of these things that are very important values that you are taking on in the context of this, uh, of this uh, institution. So I want to talk about leadership. How do we develop leadership, or what kind of leaders do we need for the changing culture and world around us? Um, I hope we've established that the world is changing. Now, how do we, as future leaders of the Church, respond to these changes? Lord, I pray that you would guide us through our study of Scripture tonight. You would give us insight into what you're doing in the Church and how we might be a part of the work that you are doing as servants and as leaders, as partners, as those who are called to be those who bring the Gospel message into all the corners of the world, but at the same time to be a part of your work and participants of your work. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, we're going to look at the book of Jeremiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Jeremiah and keep it open. We're going to look through different passages in the, in the book of Jeremiah and examine the way that we are uh, called to be prophets for our generation. And Jeremiah is, I think, one of my favorite, uh, personally one of my favorite prophets, but I think one of the most important prophets For this particular time period in human history and certainly in the history of the church. Let's start with Jeremiah chapter 1 and look at the first five verses again setting for us the context in which we understand this particular story. Jeremiah chapter 1, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem were sent into exile, went into exile. What you'll notice right away in the first few passages here, actually let's go on and read the verse four. The word of the Lord came to me saying, verse five, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So Jeremiah begins by putting us into a very particular and specific context. You might even notice in the first three verses, it is down to the exact month that Jeremiah has been called into prophetic ministry. It's down to the exact year, it's down to the exact particular time period that Jeremiah's words are, are, are called to speak into, uh, into, the nation, into the people of God. So what we see here. And then that's kind of backed up by verse five that says, "Before I formed you in the new, before you were born, I had anointed you and called you for such a time as this. And before you were even formed, I knew the plans that I had for you." So this is a very important passage for us when we think about the context into which we have been called into leadership and servanthood for the church. This is not a mistake by God. You were born to be a prophet. To be a servant, to be a leader, to be an example, to be those that are called to a particular time and purpose. Now, there are times that you might think, wait a minute, I wish I were born in another time period. I was at a conference with uh, Oz Guinness, who is a prominent uh, evangelical leader in the 20th century. And he was asking the question, people come up to me all the time as someone who's lived through a lot of the changes in global and world Christianity over the last uh, several years... Uh, He he was asked, what time period, Dr. Guinness, would you really want to live in? Uh, Would you want to be a Christian during the time of Wilberforce and uh, the changes that are occurring in terms of uh, abolition of the uh, slavery in, in Great Britain? He said, no, that wouldn't be the time. Would you want to be a Christian during the time of the Great Awakening? Uh, maybe working with Jonathan Edwards? No, that wouldn't be the time. Or would you want to be a Christian during the early church in these form- formative times when the church is being shaped? No, that wouldn't be the time. Or maybe the time with Luther and to, to be there when he nails the 95 pieces upon the, upon the door. He said, no, that wouldn't be the time. He said, what would be the time that you would want to be a Christian? And he said, right now. Right now. Right now because God has called us for such a time as this. Now, I gave you a lot of statistics in the last few days about how the world is changing from 85% of the world population, Christian population being white, to 85% of the world Christian population being non-white, and these changes, are, we're, we're smack dab in the middle of all of these changes, and even the changes in American society, moving from a majority culture uh, nation to become a very multi-ethnic nation, and we're right in the middle of these changes. And we can lament and say, oh, for a previous time period. For a day when the church was different. For a day when the church was easier. For a day when it was simpler to be a pastor of a church. When it was simpler to lead a church or to be involved in a church. When you had one culture and you didn't have to worry about the range of cultures that are out there. You didn't have to learn about how to deal with different worldviews and different cultures. Oh, for those days Or we can say we were raised and born for such a time as this. You were raised up to be a leader, a servant, a child of God, a servant of the Lord. Because before you were formed, God knew you and brought you into this world, into this context, for such a time as this. See, as I I mentioned in previous sessions, Christians have had a horrible reputation in terms of dealing with change. So in the 20th century, when change came especially in the form of African-Americans migrating from the Mississippi Delta into the northern cities, and immigrants coming in from northern and uh, uh, southern and eastern Europe into the major east coast cities, the church, the white church in particular, fled, ran off, took their Christian institutions, the churches, the the schools, the the colleges, and, and moved them out into the suburbs, because there was this fear of what these changes might bring. The fear of modernity. The fear of the, the African Americans moving into the cities, The fear of these new immigrants coming into, our, into the, the, uh, uh, the world that had been established already. And so the white Christians fled. So the history is that in the 20th century, the church failed to address and to lead when it came to the changes in the world around us. Now here, in the beginning of the 21st century, moving towards a multicultural future, how will we respond? Will we respond the way the Christians did a hundred years ago, running away from these changes? Or will we say God has called us for such a time as this, that God has anointed us and brought us into the world so that we might be the transforming presence in the midst of the changes that occur. Now, as we set this up, let's talk about If we are called for such a time as this, if we are called to minister to this particular time period, to this moment in history, what then are the characteristics of the leaders that are called for this time period? Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4 and Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4 reminds us that it was the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Not his own words, but the word of the Lord. Verse 7, actually let's start from there. Actually, this print is tiny. I can barely read this thing. Verse, uh, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. Verse 6, Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. Verse 7, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words into your mouth. This is a powerful reminder for us. That no matter how much the world around us changes, the word of the Lord is the same. The word of God remains the true source of our hope, the true source of our message. And we can come up with all sorts of fancy schmancy ways of communicating that word. But we ultimately still have to communicate the word of God, the truth of God. So it says that you're not going to make up these words for yourself. The word of the Lord is going to be placed in your mouth. And our responsibility is not to communicate what we think, but communicate the word of God itself. Communicate the truth of God. And I believe in the truth of God. I don't, I'm not one of those that says, all right, let's make up the truth and, and uh, make it uh, just kind of make it up as we go along. No, th- I believe that there is an objective and real truth that the uh, scripture speaks to. I believe that there is a gospel message that God has for us, the good news of the scripture. I think there are times we've misinterpreted it. I think there are times that we have ca- allowed it to be captive to culture. But there is a truth in the scripture that God is placing upon our lips. If that is true, If there is a truth that God has called us to communicate, if there is a truth, a gospel that we are responsible for, then we have that responsibility to guard that truth and to speak that truth and to know that truth. You have been given the truth. Now you are to guard and to speak that truth in a way that communicates the world around it. Let's think of it in this way. If you look at the book of Ephesians, it's really interesting There's the story most of you know, the armor of God. You know that story, right? God says, you've been given the armor of God. One of the interesting things about the armor of God is that almost all of the weapons you've been given are defensive weapons. The helmet protects your head. The shield protects you. The the breastplate protects you. But what you'll notice, of all those defensive weapons, you are given one offensive weapon. And what is that offensive weapon in Ephesians? The sword of the Spirit, which is... The Word of God. The Word of God. So you've been called into a battle. You've been called to deliver the message of the Lord. And you've been given one offensive weapon. Now, uh, I don't know about you, and maybe you've got some folks in in this very room. I had a crazy roommate in college. Don't look at each other because you've got crazy roommates in 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 this room right here. But I had a crazy roommate in college. And my crazy roommate was really gung-ho about weapons. He was all into weapons. So you would open up his closet and it would have like the, the ninja stars all kind of lined up on one side and a crossbow and on the other side. It was a little bit scary because, you know, I didn't know when, you know, sleeping in the middle of the night, am I hearing a knock on my door, am I going to get showered with ninja stars? So he loved weapons and to that effect he joined the Marines. And when he went, went and joined the Marines, he became a part of the, uh, the, the he was part of Marine ROTC and he way into basic training. And he learned about weapons. But he learned about one specific weapon, because a Marine is given one specific weapon, and that is his entire life. It's the M16 rifle. And it was interesting, because after he came back from boot camp, he had this little poem on his closet door. And the poem was called, My Rifle. And if you read the poem in a certain way, it sounded like a love song to his rifle. He you was know, like, I will love my rifle, I care for my rifle, I will never leave my rifle. It really, and you know, if you substitute a girl's name to my rifle, it really would have been a love song. I said, man, you got to get a date or something, because this is getting a little weird. But he really loved that rifle. And the reason is that as a Marine, that's your only offensive weapon. That's all you've got. So the Marine has to know that rifle inside and out. He has to be able to take it apart and put it back together. In fact, he has to be able to do that even blindfolded, because you never know when you're going to need to take your weapon apart. He knows every single aspect of that M16 rifle. And if that part of that poem about, the, about my rifle says, if I lose my rifle, I lose my life. That's how intimately connected the Marine is to his weapon, because that's the only offensive weapon that he's got. The sad commentary for us as Christians is that a U.S. Marine knows his M16 rifle more and better than a Christian knows the Word of God. That's a sad commentary on the Christian faith and the soldiers of the cross that we've been called to be. And here we are, we don't know the Word of God as well as a Marine knows his M16 rifle. Do you know that the Word of God has a depth to it, has a complexity to it, you don't read Jeremiah the same way that you read Revelation. You don't read the Psalms the same way you read the book of Matthew. You, they're all God's words, but there is a complexity to it. And that means we as the soldiers of the gospel, who have been given one offensive weapon, need to know this word, this weapon, inside and out. Are we at that place, where as the soldiers of the cross, we know the word of God to that level? Let me tie this in with some of the discussion we had last night. I raise for you uh, the the subtitle of my book and the the context of The Western White Cultural Captivity of American Christianity and global Christianity as well, but specifically of American evangelicalism captured by Western white forms of cultural forms more than by what the scripture actually says. So if we're taking this passage seriously in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9, that it is God's words we speak, not our cultural norms, then that raises the stakes for us as believers to understand the true Word of God rather than the cultural manifestations of the Word of God. That we take the weapon of the sword, the weapon of the sword of God, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and we take it not in its cultural expression of Western white cultural captivity, but in the true Word of God. That raises the stakes for us in how we study the Scripture. And I'll put it another way. Some of you have asked me, what do we do? to try to fight through this Western white cultural captivity, because for most of it, that's all we've known. That responsibility now falls on us to challenge the church, to say, let's follow scripture, rather than the cultural norms that have developed around the scripture. Let's look at the way that the scripture speaks in its context, and the word that it speaks to us, rather than assuming that our westernized, Americanized version of Christianity is the gospel that we're going for. And I'll put it in another way. Um, I've given this kind of talk to a number of Christian colleges, and Christian colleges that are not as diverse as Eastern Nazarene College. Again, I won't name those colleges for you, uh, but they are very, very monolithic. They are 99% white, in the middle of cornfields, in all sorts of different locations. And I've traveled there to give these kinds of talks, challenging the idea of a Western white cultural captivity of Christianity. Now, what usually happens is that when I get there... I, I as, as you probably have guessed, I don't hold back when, I, when I'm asked to talk. I'll say whatever God tells me to say, even if it's controversial. And I've had editorials written about me. I've had a webpage created by a, a Christian college student uh, that had a picture of Karl Marx. And that had my name underneath it. And then when you clicked on my name, it uh, played the Soviet National Anthem. Uh, and then they loop portions, uh, edited portions of my, my talk out of context and, and have that as the background. So I have no problem going into context and just letting people have it. That's, that's my prophetic calling, I guess. But here's something that I recognize that happens quite frequently. I will be able to say that for that moment, for that day, for that particular chapel service or for that particular conference. But it is very easily dismissed a week later or even a day later. Because then the editorials will come out, well, that was the angry Asian man of the week here, and so now that he's gone, now let's get back to the real work of the gospel message of personal evangelism. So there is a very easy way to dismiss a guest who comes in and maybe unloads or, you know, lets people have it, but a week later that guest is long forgotten. And I know this because I've been in these contexts many, many times to know how easily a speaker is forgotten after that week. And the message is forgotten after that week. So, actually, freedom from the Western white cultural captivity is not up to me, it's up to you. You're the ones that carry this message in this community. I'm not going to be here tomorrow afternoon. I'm flying home, seeing my family. I'm looking forward to that. But when I'm gone, the message that I've given is going to be easily forgotten. Unless those of you in this community continue to carry that forward. So some of you are saying, well, I'm coming from a rural community in the middle of nowhere. We have no non-white folks anywhere for miles and miles. I understand that. But what you can do is you can go back to those communities and challenge that community. How are we captive to Western white culture rather than the scripture? Or more importantly, maybe, how can we prepare for the changes that are going to come? Never mind that it's in a rural area or suburban area. Those places are also going to experience these dramatic changes. So when we talk about the truth, you have the responsibility to that truth. To not only speak the truth, but to make sure that it it really is the actual truth of the scripture, rather than a westernized or an Americanized version of that gospel truth. So when God says, I have put my words in your mouth, there is a responsibility to that truth. So the first thing that we are called through as prophets is to be true to the Word of God. Be true to the Word of God. Understand that there is a truth that we have been called to preach and to speak and to translate and to communicate through. But here's something interesting about the book of Jeremiah. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 10, which gives us the second characteristic of the prophet Jeremiah that ties in to this idea of truth. God is calling us to speak the truth. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears. Then you skip down to verse 10. And it says, "I um, I will weep and wail for the mountains, and take up a lament concerning the desert pastures. Now, both of these verses are indicative of the character of Jeremiah. I think there's something to be learned from the character of Jeremiah. What is Jeremiah's nickname? Anybody know? What is it? The weeping prophet. He's known as the weeping prophet. Uh, There's a story of a a non-believer who goes into this old cathedral in Europe. Uh, She looks around this beautiful cathedral with this ornate stained glass everywhere. And each of the stained glass has a picture or an image of the prophets. And they show Moses with the tablets. They show Isaiah writing the the, the many chapters of the book of Isaiah. They show Jonah and the whale. Um, And this non-believer sees this and is unimpressed by any of the prophets. But the one stained glass that really leaves an impression on this person is the picture of Jeremiah. Because it's Jeremiah on a stump, head buried in his hands, weeping over the lost. Now, what I think in this world right now is that we have enough people who think they know the truth. We don't have enough people who cry for the lost. It is easy to know the truth in some sense. It is harder to have the heart of truth. It is easy in one level to be right all the time. It is not easy all the time to be loving. And I would say right now, maybe the real problem are Christians who think they're right all the time, not Christians who think they're loving all the time. Wouldn't that be a nice problem to have? That we were known by our love rather than we were known by our conviction of truth and our holding to propositional of truth of the scripture. Wouldn't that be a nice problem for the church to have? To say, there go a people that love, rather than there go a people who hold on to standards that nobody can meet up to. Yes, it's important to know the truth. Yes, it's important to have the mind of God and the words of God. But it is also important to weep and wail for the loss. In other words, to have the heart of God. Let me put it this in another way. There was a study done uh, by Barna uh, about 5-10 years ago. And the question was, how many evangelical Christians would support a Christian agency that would help AIDS orphans? And it was less than 3% of evangelical Christians would help a Christian agency support AIDS orphans. Now, unpack that with me. This is not a victim, this is not a person who who has AIDS. So, you know, you can't say this person has led a, you know, certain lifestyle, drug abuse or whatever, but this person is a orphan, a child, whose parents have died of AIDS, but is a child. And that person is being helped by a Christian agency. And less than 3% of American evangelicals surveyed would help a Christian agency help an AIDS orphan. That's sick. That's evil. Now, is it true that a number of victims of AIDS have gotten that, contracted that, because of homosexuality or sexual immorality or intravenous drug use? Yes, that is true. But does that make it right that less than 3% of American evangelicals will support a Christian agency that helps AIDS orphans? It is easy to be right, but it's harder to be loving. We have enough people who know they're right. We don't have enough people who live love and who live out the value of love. I'll put this in another way. I was a pastor of a church right here in Cambridge, right right up the street here or right up the, uh, the highway here. And my church was a young church. We had a lot of college students. We were right in the middle of Uh, in Central Square uh, half a mile from Harvard and half a mile from MIT and a couple of bus stops away from Boston University a couple of train stops away from Tufts University so we drew a lot of students we drew a lot of students uh, and a lot of young people and then what's interesting is that uh, college students graduate and then they become young single adults and what's interesting when you have a church full of young single adults is that somehow or another they, they, they get to like each other and then they end up getting married so, I had a church of a lot of people in their 20s. So, I was doing like a wedding a day. I mean, that's what it felt like. I mean, every other day, I got another wedding to do. Now, when you do all these weddings, I think one summer, every single weekend, I was doing a wedding. It was amazing. Because you get, you know, college students who become young adults and natural things happen and they, they want to get married. So, we had these, I had all of these weddings and I think in my 10 years at the church, I did about 50 weddings. Now, when you do 50 weddings, you run out of material. I mean, how many times can you preach 1 Corinthians chapter 13? I love this It just, You just start running out of material, and so you start making stuff up about weddings. So this is what I was doing. I was sort of making stuff up in my wedding sermons. But one thing that I did is I was at this wedding ceremony, and I asked the bride and groom to do, to do something different with me. I said, uh, I said to the broom, uh, groom, <laughs> I said to the groom, I want you to say and shout at the top of your lungs, I will always be right, I will never be wrong. And this dang fool groom actually turned around and shouted, I will always be right, I will never be wrong. I said, okay, turn back around. Now I turn to the bride and I say, I want you to turn around and say at the top of your lungs, I will always be right, I will never be wrong. And she screams out, I will always be right, I will never be wrong. And they turn around. I said, great, I have just solved every single fight you're ever going to have in your marriage. Because we have just declared before God and these witnesses that both of you are always going to be right and never wrong. So neither of you will ever have to assert whether you're right or wrong. And you will never fight over who's right and who's wrong because we declared before God and these witnesses that you are both going to be right all the time. So now the fight is not who's right and who's wrong. The fight is who gets to be more loving. Who gets to be more loving. Now, can you imagine if couples actually fought over who gets to be loving? I want to be more loving than you today. No, you want to be... That would be crazy. But that would be incredible, wouldn't it? Because it's easy to be right, but it's harder to be loving. And that's what we see here in Jeremiah chapter 1 and chapter 9. The truth God has placed upon your lips. And absolutely speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Absolutely know the word of God inside and out like a marine knows his m 16 rifle. But also know the heart of God. Which not only communicates truth, but also communicates love. Be truth-tellers, but also live out this context, uh, live out this uh, attribute and value of love. Are you a person that speaks truth, and are you a person that lives out love? There's a third element of Jeremiah that I would like to introduce you to, and this is one of the more problematic ones, but I think maybe even the most important one. Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 through 18, reads like this. You can turn to Jeremiah chapter 20. And Jeremiah, in some of your Bibles, it will say Jeremiah's complaint. It says, O Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in, indeed I cannot. I hear many whispering terror on every side, report him, uh, let's report him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived, then we will prevail over him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. O Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For you I have commanded, committed my cause. Uh, go down to verse uh, 14. Cursed be the day that I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the good news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pet- pity. May he hear the wailing in the morning and a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Hallelujah. No, really, you can't say hallelujah to this. This is awful stuff. Did Did you read what is happening here? Jeremiah said, I wish I had never been born. Jeremiah said, cursed be the doctor that gave me birth. Cursed be my parents for bringing me into the world. Cursed be the nurse that was standing by. Cursed be the person working the gift shop handing out those little balloons. Cursed be the orderly that cleaned up afterwards. Cursed be anybody associated. This guy is really, really depressed. This guy has really got some issues. This is the person really struggling with, I don't want to be alive. Now, when we think about prophets and leaders and those who are the great achievers of our society, the last thing we think about is someone like Jeremiah that we see here in chapter 20. We want our leaders to be Superman or Wonder Woman or a combination of the two. And the husband, the, 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 you know, the, 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 they should be husband and wife and they should lead our church as Superman and Wonder Woman. And that's our expectation of leaders. And that's oftentimes the way that modernity has pushed leadership towards. These heroic leaders, heroic individuals who have done no wrong and can do no wrong and will do no wrong. But here we have Jeremiah talking to God in such a way that says, wait a minute, that really makes me uncomfortable. You're being a little too honest with God there, Jeremiah. And our perception of leadership is not someone who has an argument with God. Our perception of genuine, authentic leadership is not someone who is that human. We don't want our leaders to be that human. But here is the truth of what's happening here in Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah is real. Yes, he speaks the truth. Yes, he acts in love and compassion. But Jeremiah is real. And if I could say something about the changes that are occurring in Western society. We are looking for leaders that are going to be real. We are looking for leaders that are going to be authentic and genuine in their faith. Because we have seen too many leaders be phony in their faith. Who knew the right words to say or who knew the right ways to act, but ultimately at their soul, they were not true and honest with God, with each other, and to others. Jeremiah's strength here is his honesty. Jeremiah's strength here is his realness, his humanness. Don't lose that part of what God has called you to be. Here's what's interesting to me. When God created us in His image, He created us in His image as his spiritual image bearers. uh, uh, bearers. But at the same time, he still put us into a human container. Now, when Christ came into the world as the ultimate expression of the image of God, Christ was not a being that was this spiritual being alone. He was, in fact, encased in human flesh in the same way that we are. So that one of the things that Christ does as the first fruits, as the firstborn of this new Adam, the second Adam, is that He embodies a humanity that is what we are moving towards. But here's what's interesting about the application of that theology in the 20th and 21st century. We think we should be like Christ, not in His humanity, but in His divinity. So that if we are crucified with Christ and resurrected with Christ, now our identity is to become like Christ, but in His perfection, in His divine deity. And let me tell you something, this side of heaven, that actually is probably not going to happen. So in some sense, we are called into a fullness of our humanity, not into the fullness of our divinity. Because we are not divine. We are not deities. And for us to try to become divinity or a deity is actually Mormonism. But we are actually called to live into the humanity of Jesus as the second Adam. So, what that means is, you are called to be human. You are called to be real. You are not called to a divinity that you cannot attain, no matter how hard you try. And, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be divine either. Let's let's be very clear about this. When you get to heaven, you're not going to be a deity. Again, that's Mormonism. But when we are moving towards a new person... It's a new humanity, not a new divinity. So it is okay for us to be human. It is okay for us to be real. And I would argue that in the 21st century, we need more realness and authenticity and a genuine walk with Christ and a genuine life lived in the context of community more so than we need people who know the truth and know how to say it well. We need real people. Uh, let me put it in in this way Um, I'm going to use an illustration that most of you are not going to get my apologies up front but that's because I am a Star Trek fan and I believe that we need to pray for this next generation because none of you are Star Trek fans you are a lost generation praise the Lord we We have believers true believers right here The, the younger generation, we, you don't get Star Trek yet. You need to go and you need to rent the entire library of Star Trek and, and, and study for it, like it's on a final exam or something. Because Star Trek has so much better theology than Star Wars. Star Wars has lousy theology. Star Wars is borderline racist. No, I didn't say that. Star Wars, <laughs> Star Trek is, is the real thing. Star Wars, they have all these stereotypes, have you noticed? Like the Trade Federation, they have these Chinese accents. What's up with that? You know, and the, and the heroic Jedi are always British accents. Come on, that's racist, man. Oh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Star Trek, however, is really an example of multi-ethnicity. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Star Trek was actually the first television show that had an interracial kiss. It was beating Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Yohura. Now, it was forced by alien mind control. Nevertheless, <laughs> it was the first interracial kiss on television. Very progressive. Very progressive. It had a multi-ethnic cat. It, yes, it had a white captain. But still, you had a Vulcan as a first officer. You had a, 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 a Japanese-American at, uh, at, the, at the helm. And you had a, a Russian. And you had a Vulcan. And you had a, an African. This was a very multi-ethnic cast. Now one of the interesting things about Star Trek, the original series, is that the heart and soul of Star Trek was actually not Captain Kirk. He was just kind of this figurehead. But the real heart and soul of Star Trek was a character by the name of Mr. Spock. Remember Mr. Spock? The thing about Mr. Spock is that he was half human and half Vulcan. But he was of the species as a Vulcan that felt no emotions. So Spock's goal in life was to move from being a human to being a Vulcan, because he didn't like his human emotional side. He didn't want to have all these emotions getting in the way. He wanted to be pure logic, and he wanted to move towards being this kind of robotic, almost uh, 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 a, a kind of computer type of person, a Vulcan. Now, Stanley Grenz, who's a, a theologian who passed away uh, way before he, he should have, uh, wrote some uh, really incredible stuff about postmodernity. And he talks about Star Trek, the original series, being this quintessential modern story. Because you have this heroic captain, James Tiberius Kirk. That's a very heroic name. And he go around beating up all the aliens and sleeping with alien women. He was this really, you know, this kind of cowboy type of uh, figure. But what was interesting is that Spock is also the quintessential modern person. Because he is a human being with feelings who's trying to suppress his humanity to become all logic and reasoning. And that, Grenz argues, is the essence of modernity. To move from emotion, humanity, to being more reason and logic oriented. Now what's interesting is that there was a sequel to Star Trek The Original with Star Trek The Next Generation. And Grenz argues that Star Trek The Next Generation is actually very postmodern. Because in Star Trek The Next Generation, you have Captain Jean-Luc Picard. I mean, even the name sounds a little... Doesn't sound very masculine, doesn't sound very strong. And in fact, Picard loses every single fight he's in. He's an old guy, bald guy, he loses every single fight, and he's more of an ambassador and a diplomat than he is a warrior, much more postmodern than the modern James Tiberius Kirk. But again, Grenz argues that the heart and soul of the next generation is actually not Jean-Luc Picard. Who is the heart and soul of the next generation? Data. Data. Now, data in this next generation... What is he? He actually is a robot. He actually is an android, devoid of of emotions. And what does he strive for throughout the entire series of Star Trek The Next Generation? What does he want more than anything in the world? He wants to be human. He wants his emotions. He looks for this emotion chip that his creator has somewhere. And his longing is to be human. Because he doesn't want to be all logic and reason and a machine and a robot. That's post-modernity. So as we're moving into a new generation of believers, I, I don't need to learn about Leotard, I don't need to learn about Derrida, I want to learn about data. I want to learn about the fact that we have lost our humanity over the years. And that what the generation is looking for are not people who know the truth inside and out necessarily, but people that are real people that are human and live the life of faith in a way that shows the realness of God in the realness of one's own life. We need people that are real. We need human beings that love the Lord, make mistakes, fall, up and fall down and pick themselves up. But we need people that are real with their faith, especially when it comes to cross-cultural communication. We absolutely need real communication when it comes to cross cultural communication. The second you say, I am this type of person with all the truth to give to you, you've lost the audience. The second you say, this is me, you're you, we can't late, you need, you've lost the audience unless you are real with each other. We need that kind of realness. Uh, I'll, I'll close uh, that, uh, that part with this, uh, with this story. Uh, several years ago when I was a pastor here in Cambridge, we began to do a ministry among... Um, Uh, The Haitian community. And we got into ministry among the Haitian community mainly through working in nursing homes. We would do visitation to senior citizens' homes. And as many of you know, if you have visited senior citizens' homes in the Boston area, a huge percentage of the nurses' aides who work in these senior citizens' homes are Haitian. So we started working, uh, doing kind of services at the senior citizens' home, and the Haitian nurses' aides would come and join our worship, because they would, sometimes they would be working on Sunday, they would come and join our service with the senior citizens. And then we got to know the nurses' aides, and then we got to know their children. And one particular family we got to know very well. We got to know their mom, uh, and we got to know their, their, their at that time, five children. Uh, and my wife, who's a special ed teacher, uh, would go and help out these families. Uh, we would uh, take kind of a typical afternoon and, and drive over there and, and tutor the kids. And, and uh, I would meet with the kids and play with them. And it would just you know, be a, uh, uh, an attempt to reach out to, the, to this community and as part of our congregation. And then we really felt like this was a part of our congregation. They weren't coming to church on Sunday. The kids started coming to our children's program and started developing a relationship with them through that way. But ultimately, um, they would end up calling us pastors. My wife and I became their pastors. Uh, the one barrier, however, was with was with the father. Uh, the father did not would never call me pastor. Would always call me Mr. Ra instead of pastor or reverend. Um, and uh, kind of and I this is completely understandable. Had a pretty severe degree of mistrust. I mean, who is this Asian guy that shows up and you know hangs out with my family all of a sudden while I'm at work? You know, working two jobs. Um, so there was a little bit of a distance between this uh, Haitian uh, father and myself. And again, understandably, cultural barriers, social barriers, all of these different things that went that we really probably wouldn't have a relationship for a number of different reasons. Uh, but that actually changed one particular evening. Um, one night, it was pretty late at night, it might have been early in the morning in fact, uh, we get kind of a frantic phone call from one of the kids in the family. a uh, daughter actually calls my wife. And she's picking up, she's, you know, I, I can't understand what's going on. So I get on the phone and it turns out that uh, my friend, uh, the, the father of this family, had been arrested for assault and battery on a police officer. Uh, well, that's a, that's a pretty major deal. So I got up and I rushed uh, uh, the, uh, that, uh, that evening, and it, and it was probably still evening time, I rushed over to the police station where he was being held. And the person at the front says, well, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to see him because this is only for immediate family, and you're not immediate family, you're not uh, his lawyer, so we can't help you see him. He's going to be here overnight for assault and battery a police officer. So I go back and I talk to the wife. I try to console the family and say, I'm sorry this is going on. There's an arraignment hearing tomorrow, and let me go tomorrow and see what I can do. I'll talk to the lawyers, and, you know, obviously there's nothing, not much I can do. I'm just the pastor here, but maybe we can, you know, talk to some of the folks to, to see what we can do. So the next morning, I uh, put on my clerical collar because I wanted people to know I'm not there for any other reason except as a pastor. I'm not there for you know, any kind of other... I'm not there for a trial for me. I'm there for somebody else to help them. So I put on my clerical collar and I walk into the courtroom where my friend's uh, case has been assigned and I'm kind of sitting in the back of the courtroom. I don't know how many of you have ever been in courtrooms, but you have these kind of pews or benches and then the judge is standing way up there and like you know, seven feet above the ground. So I'm standing in the back and I'm kind of waiting, I'm hoping to find out who my friend's lawyer is, so I can talk to them about is there anything I can do, I'm happy to provide a character witness, etc. But then the judge comes out, and all rise, you know the drill, he comes out, he's in this regal robe, he's seven feet in the air, he sits down in his chair, and he says something completely bizarre, he says, I'm noticing that there's a pastor in my courtroom today, he's standing there in the back... uh, I wearing the collar. I'm noticing that my pastor, there's a pastor in the courtroom, and to honor my, the pastor's time, is it possible to move the case that he's affiliated with to the front of the docket? Could you do that? So I come over, yeah, sure. That's fine with me. So I come up to the front, and they move the case to the front of the docket, and they read the charges against my friend. And it goes on and on. It wasn't just assault and bad men, a police officer. It was now disorderly conduct. And there were about 15 charges that were listed uh, at, the, at this arraignment hearing. And I've never seen this in a courtroom before, uh, uh, prior to that or since then, but people actually gasp in the courtroom. <gasps> I, mean, I mean, who does that in a courtroom? <laughs> this is terrible! This is the worst thing I've ever heard! It was, it was that kind of moment. It was like... And then my friend is actually in a plexiglass cage. He's handcuffed, also his legs are cuffed, because when you assault a police officer, they make sure that you can't assault another police officer. So he's in this plexiglass cage, off to the side, feet and hands cuffed, And he actually starts saying, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. And the judge just like glowers at him and says, keep it down, keep it down. And it's this very tense moment because the judge is ten feet in the air and he's got this power. And then the judge, I've never seen anybody do this before, after the charges have been read, he gets up out of his chair, he stands behind his chair, and remember he's way up in the air. He looks down upon my friend in that little plexiglass cage and he goes, I should throw the book at you. I should throw get, get you into jail and throw away the key to have this kind of... And what had happened was he had had an assault in front of his kids. And so he was like, to do this kind of action in front of your kids, this is terrible. I've never... You know, he goes on and on for like five to ten minutes just blasting away at my friend here in this little plexiglass cage. Then he says the most bizarre thing I have ever heard in my life. He says, but, I should throw the book at you and I should lock, throw away the key and lock you up forever, but... Your pastor is here. And because your pastor is here, I'm going to release you into his custody. Is that okay with you, pastor? Yeah, sure, <laughs> okay. Now, this, I don't know if you have any of you are pastors or any kind of like youth ministry or anything like that. This is a dream come true for pastors. I mean, you have all the power right now. The judge has now declared that he is being released into your custody. And he goes on to say, Pastor, I'm going to give the bailiff my cell phone number. He's going to give it to you. If he acts up or acts out in a certain way, you give me a call and we'll get him back into jail. Is that okay with you, Pastor? "Uh, Yeah, sure. So on the spot, the bailiff goes over, unlocks him, gets him out of the cage, and now the attorney and I and and um, and, and, and my friend are now walking down the aisle, walking down the the hallway to go towards the parole office because I have to sign the papers to get him released. So we go to the police, uh, the uh, parole office and the parole officer hands me a card and said, this is my cell phone number, if he acts up in any way, you call me and we'll get him back in jail. And so I sign the papers, he's been released into my custody, and so now, not only is, do I have this control over him, he has to go back in my car. Because he came in the police wagon, so now he has to sit in my car and I get to drive him home. Again... If you're a pastor, this is like a dream come true. Because you have got all the power. This man is mine. I own this man. So here we are driving home, driving to his house. I've got complete control over him because the judge said so. His attorney said so. The parole officer said so. So what do I do? I unload on this guy. For half an hour, as we're driving from the courthouse to his house, I am screaming at him, what is wrong with you? And I'm spitting, this foam all over the front windshield, it's disgusting. The blood has drained from my eyes as I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. We pull up to the front of his house, he has not said a word, and he has not responded to all my screaming. Now I'm thinking, wait a minute, I've got power over you. I own you in some sense. You, I have this authority over you. I can call the judge and have you thrown back into jail. Why are you not listening to me? And I was flabbergasted. I said, you know what? I'm going to try something else because this is not working. So I said, let's try something else. We've pulled up to the house. The blood has drained from my head. The foam is still kind of foaming on the, on the, on the windshield. Let's try something else. So I started talking to him about his son. He had an 11-year-old son at the time. I said, you know, your son is great. Your son is amazing. But he's also at a point in his life, his his oldest son, when he's going to start getting into a little bit of trouble. And we've already seen that. Some of the friends that he's had, some of the scrapes that he's gotten into school, he's going to start getting into a little bit of trouble. And then I told him about when I was 11 years old, my dad ran out on my family. I told him what it felt like to grow up without a dad in an urban neighborhood and how difficult that was. I told him about my strained relationship with my dad and how I didn't want to see the same thing for him. And you know, when I started being real with him, that's when the barrier fell down. With all the power that I thought I had, with all the authority and all the truth that I thought I was telling him, ultimately it's when I was real and human with my friend that those barriers fell down. And we made a connection. We talked. We prayed. We went back in and prayed with his wife. We talked together again and prayed again. And there was a relationship that developed. Not because I had power. Not because I was right. Not because I had it all figured out. But because I was real and I was human with my brother in Christ. Several, uh, about a year or so later, about two years later, um, they had another child. Uh, It was actually a very difficult pregnancy. Uh, uh, At about six months in, the mom had preeclampsia and had to go into the hospital and delivered prematurely. Um, and we, my wife and I were there. We were able to pray through with the family. And, and uh, thankfully, the, uh, both the uh, mom and the baby survived and, 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 and did well. Um, and obviously, because the baby was born about two and a half months to be premature, they rushed the baby into the NICU unit, the neonatal intensive care unit. Now, that's one of the most intense places where they take care of babies. The problem was that only immediate family is allowed to go into the NICU unit. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't let anybody into that unit because this is kind of highly critical, sensitive time. Um, so I go down there, and I, I'm there with my friend, and he's trying to get me in to see his newborn. Uh, and uh, he, the nurse says, well, you're not family, are you? I said, well, yeah, I'm not family. Um, and so, well, then you can't come in. You're not, you're not a member of this family. And my, my friend said, no, he's my pastor. Of course he's coming in. And as his pastor, I went in, prayed for that baby. And the baby survived, and the baby is actually our godson. That happens not because I had the power, not because I had the authority, not because I was stronger or more educated or better than this other person. It happens when we are real with one another. It happens when we are honest with God and with one another. Friends, know the truth of the scripture. Read the Word in such a way that you know the truth in what it actually says. Not what the culture says it says, but what the Word of God actually says. Live lives of exemplary love in such a way that it honors your Heavenly Father. But also learn to be real with your Heavenly Father, with one another, and with the world that's crying out for Christians not to be right all the time, but to be loving. And not to be right all the time, but to be real. Those are the prophets we need for this generation. God, I thank you that you have loved us with an unfailing love. And you have called us out of darkness into your wonderful life. And you've done it with the truth of your word. You've done it with the truth of who you are. And you have set for us the example with which to follow. Thank you, Lord, for the example of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, whose, whose, whose words, whose life, whose uh, testimony still rings for us today. And we know that there are challenges for us as a Christian community. We know that there are challenges for the church. But we ask, Lord, that you would call us into a prophetic ministry, a ministry of servanthood, a ministry of leadership, leadership that is based upon your truth, based upon your heart, but also based upon the fact that we are real before you and before your people. Call us to this kind of prophetic ministry, for we pray this in your name. Amen.